Hear that? Believe it or not, summer is just around the corner. Luckily, Armorall, America's most trusted auto appearance brand, has what your car needs to get that perfect summer shine. Plus, now through May 31st, we'll give you $5 for every $20 you spend on Armorall products. That means car wash pods, protectant, tire shine, you name it. Find out how to get your $5 rebate at Armorall.com. Armorall, less work, more clean. Terms apply. Hey, everybody, welcome to the Single Tracks Podcast. My name is Jeff, and today, Aaron and Greg and I are going to be talking about mountain bike products that suck. And before you tune out and think, you know, this is just going to be a bunch of ranting and we're going to talk about, talk bad about particular products, really what we're going to be talking about is product categories for the most part and talking about products that frustrate us a little bit on the trail. And then we'll also try to offer a little bit of constructive feedback, you know, in terms of how these products can be improved. So Aaron, I wanted to start off with you. What's one of those mountain bike products that you get frustrated with every now and then? One of the biggest ones for me would be dropper posts. And, you know, I'm a huge advocate of dropper posts. I think they are more revolutionary than the fat bike. I know Greg disagrees with me there. But I think they've done more to change like how people ride. And, um, yeah, I just think they're the greatest thing since sliced bread. Except, you know, I've had issues with just about every brand of dropper out there. You know, sometimes it's just a little quirk, but other times it's major problems. You know, I kind of feel like we're moving into the second or possibly even the third generation of dropper posts at this point. And a lot of these issues are getting worked out and fixed. But uh, some of them I would include would be bad remote ergonomics. That's a big pet peeve because, you know, if you have poor lever placement or an uncomfortable lever, it's going to be difficult to use your dropper. And, you know, especially in situations where you really need it, where you're coming into a section and you want to get the post out of the way and you're going fast, you don't want to be fumbling around looking for that button. Another one would be poor reliability. That's probably the, the first one I actually should should say that above remote ergonomics. But yeah, I think I think all of us have probably had problems with dropper reliability. They can be really finicky to set up. I mean, this goes for hydraulic posts and mechanical posts. Very, you know, tight tolerances and yeah, you know, you have to pull the for some of the mechanical ones, you have to pull the cable just so you need like a two millimeter gap here. And if you leave it too long or cut it too short, you got to start over. So that's a big bummer. You know, it's not just like a set and forget super easy setup kind of thing. Uh, precautions that you have to take, like you're not supposed to lift your, your bike by the saddle. If the post is dropped, that's, I mean, it's just something that, you know, if you're hike a biking and your post is dropped and you're tired and it's the end of a long day. You don't, that's just, you're not going to be thinking about that. And, you know, you get to pull up on your post and maybe you'll damage the internals. Decreased performance in cold weather. That's thankfully not something that's that big of an issue here in Georgia, but we did have a quite the cold snap a couple of weeks ago. I mean, I was riding and it was around 20 degrees out and I dropped my post and it wouldn't come back up because <laughs> it was, it was too cold. So yeah, that's a, uh, that's kind of the, what I would say are the, the major issues that I have with droppers. Yeah, that's a lot of drawbacks. A lot of those things too, I, I still don't have a dropper on any of my bikes. And that's a big part of it for me is because I hate working on my stuff or worrying about my stuff. As I can confirm. Yes, as some people can confirm. <laughs> so yeah, that honestly, that's keeping me out of the market for dropper posts. 
uh, for now. So yeah, those are, those are definitely serious issues. And they're expensive, right? So it's kind of a bummer that something that's so expensive also requires a lot of maintenance and you got to take all these precautions and et cetera. So, you know, the solution I think, and more companies are maybe starting to realize this, uh, I mean, I'm no engineer, but is simple, simple, simple. You want to make it as simple as you can. You know, like the 9.8 dropper, it's a company out of Canada. They use a, a mechanically operated post. It's basically like a mechanical brake. So there is some air pressure in there to assist with returning the post to, to you know, full extension. But if it loses pressure, you can manually set it in any position, which is nice because then, you know, if your post craps out halfway through the ride, you can finish the ride, but you can also still use your dropper, right? So if there's a downhill, you can drop your post, and then when it's time to climb, you just have to reach down and pull the post up manually. And another thing is easily replaceable internals. I think you're starting to see more companies go this route where it's just a cartridge that you can drop in. So if something does go wrong, it's just a simple kind of like plug and play um, replacement. And I think another thing could be just going back to a 34.9 seat post diameter, which is was kind of I don't know, big in the early 2000s on a lot of uh, full suspension bikes. It's a massive tube. It's the biggest uh, seat tube, basically, that that companies can use. And that would just allow room for more of the internals, you know, so you could have more robust seals and, and things like that. So I think, like, Trek, for one, and possibly Scott, I believe, are are starting to use that larger size again. So maybe we'll see more companies go that route. I've actually got a 34.9 on my 2014 GT, but I have a hard time finding anything to go in there, which is unfortunate. But you can get a reverb, and I do have a new reverb in there, but unfortunately, I was back in the shop with it again just last week. Thankfully, I think it's going to be a combination of I my air pressure dropped and it was cold like Aaron was talking about. But uh, I was talking with my local pro mechanic, Scott Banks, and uh, while we haven't gotten on a 9.8, here at single tracks that he was saying that, you know, despite the fact their internals like are look genius and the idea is great, they're still having to maintain and work on a lot of failed 9.8 dropper posts. So yeah, it's just like nobody's found the silver bullet yet. So hopefully they do soon. Bummer. All right. So Greg, what about you? What's, what's first on your list of mountain bike products that suck? Number one thing I would have to say that I cannot stand are chain stays on many plus and fat bikes. And I've written about this quite a bit. And if you want the quick and dirty version, check out my article called Quantifying the Calf Bang Factor. And basically, this happens when shorter riders like me who may be on the more muscular end, like sometimes your calves can actually like hit the chain stays of these bikes uh, or even sometimes the seat stays uh, if they're not designed properly. Yeah. Yeah. There, this used to be a big issue back in the day. You wouldn't be hitting your calves on the chain stays. Seat stays. Yeah. <laughs> if you, if your calves hit the chain stays, you'd, your leg might be broken. So yeah, seat stays. But from what I've heard from taller riders who have longer feet, heel bang on the chain stays can be an issue. I personally don't have that, um, but some other riders do. Yeah, I get I get that occasionally. I get the heel rub on the, on the chain stays on certain bikes, especially since a lot of rear ends have moved to boost. So they have the, the wider, you know, the wider axle spacing. So a lot of, you know, the chain stays are a little bit more flared. So 
I will. On some models, I'll I'll rub my my heel on the chainstay. I don't really notice it when I'm riding, but you can definitely see where I've rubbed the paint off some bikes. Yeah, and the interesting thing is it used to be like a really big issue, and we're starting to see brands resolve it. But the funny thing was, you know, when I'd bring this up to brands, you know, two three years ago, they're like, "Oh, that's not a problem," um, but now they're fixing it. So people didn't want to own up to it, but I think we're starting to see this be resolved and to resolve it better. I think brands need to do a better job of like testing across all sizes in their lines. So for instance, lots of times in a size large frame with a standard size large rider, you might not have this calf bang until you have a rider who's like five, four and, uh, and is stockier and is on a size small or something of that nature. So, you know, there needs to be testing across all these model lines or all the sizes rather in a model line. Um, but thankfully we're seeing some improvement on that. And I would just say like, if you have this issue on a bike, don't settle Buy a different model from a different brand because there are bikes out there that don't have that problem. Awesome. Okay. My turn. So I really hate hydration packs for mountain biking. I think my initial problem with them was, was always just that they were heavy, you know, putting anything on your back is not fun when you're riding a mountain bike, but not only that, you're putting the heaviest thing pretty much that you can carry, which is water on your back. I mean, it's, it's a lot of weight. So I'm not a big fan of hydration packs for carrying water on my back, but I'm also not a fan of the bladders themselves. You know, they're high maintenance. It's difficult to clean them and keep them dry and keep them from leaking. And then there's also the whole issue of just the taste. Maybe I have a sensitive palate, but Man, I hate the taste of water out of a hydration pack. A brand new one, an old one, like it doesn't seem to matter. It just always tastes awful to me. It's always that rubbery, the hint of rubberiness. Yes, yes. And I mean, thankfully you can put uh, like the tablets and things into it to mask the flavor a little bit. But man, I, that's just that's just horrible. So I don't even use a hydration pack anymore. And, you know, I've thought about it in terms of like what could be done to improve them. And honestly, I don't know if there is anything. I, I feel like it's a flawed concept, but there are definitely ways around, you know, having to carry a hydration pack. I, for one, use a fanny pack to carry uh, all the gear that I need, you know, tools and a jacket and camera and all that kind of stuff. And then I use water bottles, you know, on the frame. Some fanny packs do have hydration bladders in them, uh, but again, you know, my problem is not just the weight, but it's also the taste and the maintenance on the hydration bladder. What do you guys think? Do you guys, you guys enjoy using hydration packs? Heck no, man. I, I hate those things too. And I, it took me a, quite a few years before I was like, I'm going to try to do something about this. And my personal solution was, uh, frame bags, especially on, uh, I use frame bags even on my six inch travel enduro rig. And part of the reason I decided to go with a frame bag setup over, say, like a water bottle setup is that I can effectively fit way more water in that frame than I can with just like one water bottle mount. Since I have a frame bag, in there. You know, if I'm like on a hardtail and I've got like two bottle cages, you know, then the bottles, you know, the, that's a great solution for me. But for my standard riding, uh, the frame bake has been rad. And the key though, I found, I tried doing the hydration bladder in the, in the frame bag, which you can do, but you hit all the things Jeff was talking about. My key was when I added 
collapsible water flasks. And I believe Corey reviewed them on the site first, which is where I first heard about them. But the ones I use are from Hydropack. It's basically like a water bottle, 24 ounces, but it collapses down, which means you get that space back as you drink your water. So they're also easier to fit in the frame bag since they've got flex to them and you can sort of finagle them in there and as your ride goes along you clear out water if you've got say tools or something in your pocket in your jersey you can start moving that stuff to the frame bag and dropping more and more weight off your back even as you go along so for more on that check out my article which tells how i refine my gear setup with frame brakes specifically from oveja negra which is a local company nice yeah i uh i hate wearing a hydration pack too but i find that uh, all too often I end up having to wear one because, you know, a lot of the bikes that uh, we test these days don't even have provisions for any water bottle, or if they do, it's on the underside of the down tube, which is not an ideal place, you know. Um, the in-town trails that we ride on, I would not want to <laughs> drink um, out of a water bottle. You know, we go through some pretty nasty creeks. I mean, it's an urban area, so... God knows what's uh, floating around in that water. So it's not the ideal setup for the city. And then if you go into the mountains, there's horses. There's you know horse shit everywhere. And yeah, so that's not really a, a good a good. It's just not a good place. I mean, it's your down tube. That's where dirt and mud and horse crap and whatever else is getting sprayed. So if any of that gets on your water bottle and you're not super diligent about cleaning the mouthpiece you could be in for a kind of a miserable few days but yeah so I'm, I'm with you jeff i i hate wearing a hydration pack sometimes it's just a necessary evil though but i'm i'm all about water bottles that's why you know i love i love my hardtail because i can fit two on there i know chris daniels who writes for us he likes to give me shit because i'm always complaining about bikes without water water bottle cages but uh you know i get thirsty you know even in the summer here in georgia i mean it gets so hot when you're talking it's 90 plus degrees and 90 plus percent humidity you need a water bottle even on a, a short ride to just make it through you know even on a two-hour ride it's kind of hard to get away with not having any water yeah and i forgot to mention hydration packs make you hotter too when you got to wear them in the summer so yeah too bad we have to drink water maybe that's the problem is humans are flawed because we need water when we ride bikes, if we didn't have that, if we didn't need water, then none of this would be a problem, I guess. So. The real solution is just to evolve past the need for water. Yes. Camel humps. <laughs> <laughs> okay. All right, Greg, I see on your list, you got gearboxes. What's What bothers you about those gearbox bikes? Well, I would say that drivetrains bother me, but I honestly don't have any feedback for how to improve the current drivetrain system besides going with a different style of drivetrain. Problems I have with a standard derailleur setup are just lack of weatherproofness. In fact, I like break stuff all the time. And the gearbox, which is uh, basically like an internal transmission, if you haven't seen or read about one before, it seems like it would solve those problems. But I tested one at Interbike, and it brings up new problems. I wrote a detailed article on it you can check out by the same title. But basically, you can't shift under load while you're going uphill. And... The gearbox advocates try to tell you how this isn't a problem, but you know if you're pedaling efficiently, you need to cycle down through your gears as you're climbing. You know they're like, oh, you can drop a whole bunch of gears all at once at the bottom of the hill, and it's like, sure you can do that, but then you're going zero miles an hour, um, which is not 
great. You know, so that's just not a great system. You know, essentially you need some sort of clutch like mechanism, like in a, uh, a motorcycle or in a car in order to allow you to change gears and allow you to push the gears apart and back in the gear and shift on the fly. Although how you would do that on a bike, it would probably be pretty tricky. Yeah. Well, some of the other problems that you didn't mention too, are that it's heavy, which really affects the handling of the bike. Companies try to put it in different places, you know, so it's slightly, some companies are putting it in the rear hub, which is really awkward. And then others are putting it into the bottom bracket where it's a little more balanced, but it still makes the bike a lot heavier. And then not only that, these systems are really expensive. So yeah, a lot of, a lot of cons for sure on the drivetrain. You know, I would actually disagree with you on the weight. Like, uh, they, they are heavier than some of the high end drivetrains, but if you compare a high end gearbox to a low end drivetrain, they can actually come in lighter. And, you know, weight and expense, you know, those are both things that we always get, like on the beginning of a, product development cycle, which I didn't bring up those because I think they're issues that can be solved like over time with more engineering. But the function of it, you know, that's sort of the critical issue. Like if we can't get that right, then it doesn't matter how light it is, you know? Well, the best solution would be a CVT, which is a continuously variable transmission, which is what they're putting in a lot of cars nowadays. And essentially you've got an infinite number of gear ratios within a set range. So like, you know, like a dropper post is infinitely adjustable within a set range. So you can put it anywhere between zero and 150 millimeters or whatever. And a CVT would negate the need to shift and you just pedal and it would always be in the right ratio for whatever your cadence was or whatever your power output was. But as to the practicality of that being miniaturized and put into a bicycle, I have no idea, but that would be, that would be really cool because it'd be like a single speed but you'd have a bunch of gear ratios. Yeah, that would be really interesting. All right, so we've got a couple more. And the next two that I'm going to talk about are electronic devices on the trail, which are controversial in and of themselves. But helmet cameras, for one. You know, helmet cams have been around for a while, and I'm still just frustrated that the quality of video that you get from a helmet cam isn't nearly as good as like what I get from my iPhone. Colors always seem to be washed out and... The resolution on them, while, you know, technically a lot of them are like 4K and, you know, how, who knows how many pixels, it still just doesn't look as good as my phone, which I don't totally understand. And then there's also the, the fact that all these cameras include a fisheye lens, which really distorts what you're looking at. I mean, I understand the reason for doing it, but it also, after a while, it's really hard to watch. Speaking of really hard to watch too, POV videos, point of view videos, get really boring. I think all of us have recognized that now. And these cameras just make it too easy to just turn it on and record your whole ride. And honestly, the footage just isn't that great. And then also the mounting options for mountain biking. You know, these helmet cameras were actually started, the GoPros in particular were started for use in surfing. And I haven't watched a lot of surfing videos myself, but I imagine surfing, maybe maybe it's not as bumpy as mountain biking because every mountain bike video that I've ever tried to shoot and most that I've watched are really shaky. There's no good place on your body or on your bike to mount a POV camera that's not going to end up with a lot of rattling and terrible sound and, you know, all that. So hopefully there's a solution out there. You know, I'm, I'm excited about drones 
using drones to capture more footage. And then also, I think what it really comes down to is people need to spend more time creating their videos. And so that means taking the camera off your helmet or your bike and setting it up in a fixed position and you got to ride by it. And then you got to turn around and go get it. And really what you need to do is change up your shots. And unfortunately, you're not going to be able to create an awesome mountain bike video by just strapping a camera on and going about your business. Right. Yeah, I think you you touched on that. Like maybe what the real issue is, is people don't edit their footage, you know? (laughs) You know, I don't need to sit through eight minutes of a video to see like one or two cool parts. And editing is a huge time suck especially when you don't know what you're doing and you didn't go into the woods with a plan. You know, if you look at professional videos, no shots are longer than a couple seconds, you know, and it's, there's a lot of setup for each one of those shots. And, you know, once people do figure out that editing sucks and it's hard, they stick their GoPros in a drawer, which I think is why you're seeing, you know, companies like GoPro struggling right now, just because people don't, the, the market's pretty saturated at this point And, you know, if you're if you're not actually editing the footage, it gets really old really fast. Yeah, that's a good point. I think you're right that a lot of people, they are attracted to the novelty of it and they think they're going to use it a lot. But then most of us have found that we don't. We just stick it in a drawer and we don't take it on as many rides as we used to. So that's kind of a bummer. So next up on my list are GPS units. And I've been a big fan of riding with GPS for a long time. Um, I started riding with GPS like in 2001. And so the GPSs have have changed a bit since that time. But the problem is they're still really clunky to use, especially now that we have smartphones. So I think we all got spoiled a little bit with our smartphones because the screens are so awesome and you can, you know, they're touch sensitive. So you can like easily pan around on a map and zoom in and zoom out really quickly. But on the GPS units and the ones that you know, we've been testing lately even. I just get so frustrated with the menus having to like push a bunch of buttons just to make it start the GPS or whatever it is. And every one of them's different. And so you got to relearn it every time. And then also I could go on and on, I guess, but, <laughs> but yeah, I've stopped riding with GPS units. Probably stopped three or four years ago just because I feel like my smartphone is much more capable. You know, we've done tests too where we found that Smartphones are just as accurate, if not more accurate. You know, the biggest issue with a smartphone is probably just that people are afraid they're going to break their phone, which, you know, is a valid concern. And so I think the solution is better mounts and cases for smartphones. And then also battery life is a concern with smartphones. You know, with a dedicated GPS unit, you can get 12 hours or 24 hours or more usage out of it on a single charge, whereas on your phone, you know, you'd be lucky to get like four hours out of it. So for bikepacking and things like that, smartphones still aren't up to the task. But man, GPS units are frustrating to me. Yeah, I, I agree with you there, Jeff. You know, one of the few pros to using a dedicated GPS is that it's, you know, it's smaller than your phone. So it takes up less space on your bars. And hopefully it's going to be a little more durable. But, you know, as phones continue to get better, I can see a lot of GPS units kind of go in the way of the point and shoot camera. You know, I mean, I think smartphones have all but killed that market. You know, I mean, look at the one of the latest ads for the iPhone 7. There's a dude, he's getting all geared up to go ride his road bike in the rain because the new iPhone 7 is at least highly water resistant. Yeah. And he's got, I mean, he's just got the phone like mounted to his handlebars without a case. And that's like the whole point of the ad is that you can 
take this thing out in a rainstorm and it'll be fine. You know, so I think, I don't think we'll see dedicated GPS units go away entirely, but I think you'll just see fewer and fewer options available. You know, I'm actually getting ready to do a bikepacking race, I guess, uh, the Hurricane 300 down in Florida in a couple of weeks. And, you know, I was kind of looking around at my options as to what to use for navigation. And I ended up buying uh, an app called Gaia GPS and seemed a little overwhelming at first, but it turns out it's really easy to use and it's on your phone. So like you said, you can zoom in, you can pinch, you can pan around, you can build routes on your phone itself. Um, it's really impressive and it's far easier to use than even a, a simple GPS. Right on. Well, let's move on to something a little less high tech. What about mountain bike shoes? Aaron, you seem to have some issues with the mountain bike shoes on the market today. I do, man. I just, I like shoes in general. So I got all kinds of shoes, but, uh, my main issue is I'm always breaking buckles on shoes. I don't know if anyone else has this problem. Um, but it seems to be like more often than not, I snag them on rocks, like just trying to, I guess, shimmy through tight areas or something, but I'm always, uh, ripping buckles off my shoes and the buckles are expensive to replace. Like, uh, I've got a, a set of Shimano shoes that I, I like. I'm a big fan of Shimano shoes, but I don't know what they make their buckles out of. If it's like, you know, compressed fairy bones or something, <laughs> but I'm always breaking those. And a set of replacement buckles is like 25 bucks, which isn't a lot of money, but that's like 15% of the cost of the entire shoe itself. So it seems high relative to, you know, what it is. And I actually, when I, I got this pair of shoes last summer, I guess, and broke one of the buckles on a, on one of my first rides and I got them from REI and I went back and I was like, Hey, can you guys order me some replacement buckles? And they said, no, we'll just give you a new pair of shoes. And I was like, I really, I don't, I mean, like, you know, I've kind of broken these in, they're comfortable. And they're like, no, no, no. We're not going to order you buckles. Here's an entire new pair of shoes. So I know that's just REI's deal, but um, yeah, it's just like I just just make the buckles easier to get. Yeah, I've got the same problem. I got a sweet pair of the Pearl Azumi X Project shoes, the top of the line ones, and I ripped a buckle off of that. And I spent months trying to track down a replacement buckle, and nobody could find it. My local bike shop couldn't order one. You know, I was emailing back and forth with Pearl Azumi. I don't know if they don't make them or nobody knows how to get them or what, but now those shoes are just sitting in a drawer and I can't use them anymore, even though the shoes themselves are fine. Yeah, buckles suck. Yeah, I mean, make make the replacements more accessible, I think would be a big, big thing. And maybe moving the position of the buckles themselves as well. Like I've seen some of the new Pearl Azumis, actually they have the dial is on top of the foot. So I think that would actually... Yeah help where, you know, the Shimano's that buckles way on the side, which is more prone to snagging on crap. Y'all need to get some BOA buckles. Um, I did a factory tour with BOA a couple of years ago and it's incredible just the support they have for their buckles. Basically it's like a hundred percent like guarantee lifetime of, uh, the shoe. And they even go so far as to like, if they need replacement parts for an old type of BOA dial that they've discontinued and somebody needs 
to replace their dial, they'll do a small parts run to have parts to warranty. So, and it's totally free. They totally cover all their things, which, you know, Boa does a great job and you're starting to see their dials pop up on all kinds of shoes and all kinds of brands. And a big thing of theirs too is like just quality shoe design. Like you're saying, Aaron, like they don't want to put their dial on a shoe where it's going to be like really exposed on the side. They're like, Hey, we need to work to make this smarter. So hopefully we see this change coming down the pipe. Greg, I know you're uh, notoriously hard on shoes amongst other things. So what, what, what grinds your gears with shoes? Man, I just, I just feel like, you know, a shoe is your contact point to the bike and the ground. And it just seems like this piece should be durable and should be up to some serious use and abuse. Um, especially if you're calling your shoe enduro and saying, Hey, this is made for rugged conditions. For some reason, I've absolutely shredded, um, the rubber soles, uh, basically every enduro shoe I've owned in a short amount of time, you know, and I just don't understand why that is. Like, it seems to me like it should be more durable than the XC shoe. Like understand, you know, XC shoes generally don't have like the rubber and the traction of an enduro shoe. But if I can only get like a month of summer riding out of one pair of enduro shoes, like that seems like a horrible investment for me, you know? So again, I don't know what the situation is. I don't know if people aren't actually like testing their shoes or if they're like, Hey, I rode like 400 miles in these enduro shoes that we market as being hike a bike friendly, but I didn't hike in them once. Like, I don't know if that's a situation or what's going on here, but we need some better rubber on the bottom of these things. Yeah, I agree with you there. The rubber is one thing that I think not just on enduro shoes, but all shoes can benefit from better rubber. Like, I mean, even on super lightweight XC shoes, like at some point I'm going to be off the bike. I'm going to be walking around in these shoes. So help a brother out with a little bit of traction, you know, put some real rubber. And luckily I think companies are finally starting to get that message in, um, you know, like the Shimano shoes I was referring to, they're kind of, uh, I, I call them a trail shoe. I wouldn't say they're necessarily an enduro shoe, but they actually do have a nice, like soft rubber on the bottom and the rubber is held up great. You know, I've had them for almost a year at this point and they're, they're still going strong. And, um, you know, the, the soles are really stiff, so that makes the hike of bikes awkward, but at least you're not fighting a stiff sole and a lack of traction. One thing I did notice at all the trade shows this year is that I've started to see a lot more shoes that aren't like super bulky, like huge enduro shoes. Um, and they have more of the streamlined standard XC look, but they do have like the rubber on the bottom. So I guess like Aaron is saying, calling them a trail shoe, but I saw them from a lot more brands um, at the trade shows this year. And I've got one or two pairs I'm hoping to get in soon. Um, depends on availability, but hopefully we're seeing good things coming. Yeah, one more thing on shoes. I don't know if you guys have this problem, but my mountain bike shoes stink. They smell so bad. And I don't, you know, I I know be like, "Well, your feet stink." Well, no, they don't. All right, cuz like your feet sweat. Yeah, my feet sweat. So maybe that's what it is. But, you know, my you know, I've I mean, I've had running shoes and, you know, obviously my like daily street shoes. I've I've never really had this problem with my shoes smelling so bad, but good lord, like <laughs> I've got to be really diligent about, you know, when I finish a ride, I got to take them, you know, take the insoles out. And I usually have like balled up newspaper that I cram in there to help keep it dry and keep the smell down, which really helps. But if I don't do that, they just, 
they just reek. So I, I don't know, maybe more breathable materials, maybe some built-in fans. I don't know, something. <laughs> and fewer sewer rides. We're <laughs> talking about those in-town trails here, and that's definitely an issue. Yeah. All right, I've got one more, and I don't know if others will agree with me, but I, I don't like dealing with mountain bike tires. You know, I feel like I'm constantly trying to maintain pressures. I'm always adding more air because tires are leaking or, you know, punctures happen pretty frequently, I think, to all of us. But that's something that I, I wish was not an issue, you know, because with punctures, you end up carrying tubes and, you know, a pump or CO2 and maybe you got tire levers. So you got to carry a bunch of stuff because it's inevitable that you're going to get a puncture at some point in your mountain bike career. So for me, you know, I'm always excited about the idea or hoping that maybe one day it's possible to build tires that don't need air, you know, non-pneumatic mountain bike tires. And there are things out there, there are materials out there like solid cores that you can like put in your tire. And then there's like the run flat type technology, the pro core from Schwalbe. But yeah, it just seems like if you could get you know, maybe I'm dreaming too big here, but if you could get the same performance out of existing tires, you know, in terms of the way that they handle on the trail, but you could do it with like a solid, you know, something in the middle of it um, that doesn't require air, then I would be all over that. Yeah, that would be awesome. But I think, you know, the the real solution for now, at least, is to run more durable tires in the first place. Check your tire pressure religiously and make sure your sealant isn't dried out. You know, if you're doing those things, then that's going to eliminate a lot of flats and eliminate a lot of headaches. I think one of the problems that I see most common is people flat all the time. They run really lightweight tires because they roll faster and, you know, they want their bike to be lighter and maybe they like the suppleness, but I would rather take a penalty and ride quality and weight and not be sitting on the side of the trail fixing flats all the time. So, you know, even my, uh, you know, quote unquote cross country bike has pretty burly tires on it. I mean, I run, you know, typically like some minions or like a WTB trail boss or something on it because I hate dealing with flats. Current solid tires, uh, they ride like dog shit. So that's not a, <laughs> that's not a solution, at least for now. And, and Procore, it would, it helps with pinch flats, but it's, it's heavy and it doesn't help with, uh, sidewall tears. And, you know, Schwabe actually touts the ability to run lighter tires as a benefit to Procore, which is kind of hilarious coming from them. Um, I know, uh, in Schwabe's defense, some of their newer tires are much better, but I think they have, uh, you know, notoriously thin sidewalls. So, them saying that, yeah, oh yeah, just throw a lighter tire on there. It seems uh, like a recipe for disaster. You know, and even if you look, like a lot of Schwabe-sponsored pro riders don't run Procore because it is so heavy. You know, it's a, it's it's adding a ton of weight. You're essentially adding like a road bike tire in a road tube to your setup. So you're talking, you know, who knows, like several hundred grams per wheel. So maybe if you're, you know, if you, if you don't care about the weight, you know, again, I, I'm an advocate for running burlier tires, but there is, there is some, you know, eventually there is kind of a point of diminishing returns. And I don't think adding, you know, 400 grams per wheel is uh, necessarily a good idea. Right. Bummer. I guess I'll have to keep waiting. 
All right, finally, Greg, you've got a really good one, really good product that sucks. And I think I think a lot of people listening in will agree with you. What is that? Man, I think e-bikes have a ton of issues. I could go into these in, in detail, but you know we have very short battery lives, extremely high weights, um, plus all the, the access issues that come along with them. And I've editorialized on the topic before, but I think there is a pretty simple solution since we are all about offering solutions here, and that is to take the motor off the e-bike. That's all I got. Boom. Problem solved. Yeah, simple enough. Awesome. Well, yeah, it's been it's been fun and hopefully a little bit entertaining to talk about mountain bike products that suck and thinking about ways that maybe they can be improved. Remember, you can always check out Single Tracks to read our honest feedback and reviews on all kinds of mountain bike products, full bikes, components, electronics, pretty much anything you'd use on the trail. So be sure to check those out. Thanks for joining us this week. We'll talk to you again next week. Peace.